And I just think so often in our faith, we can just draw those boundary lines really close, really tight in. Um, and I just think God is a really, He's a very gracious and very generous God. Yeah. And He's not afraid of our questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Over the last few years, Lori Ferguson Wilbert has been moving toward a more contemplative and expansive faith. She has learned to be more curious, living into questions as a way of being present with God, rather than seizing too quickly on answers that may not be as helpful or as true as they first appear. That trajectory gives shape to her new book, A Curious Faith. Lori Wilbert, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited about your new book, A Curious Faith. Help me out with the subtitle. Uh, <laughs> question, question God asks, we ask, and we wish someone would ask us. Did I get that right? You did. You did. Yeah. Yeah. So this, why, why don't you tell me, <laughs> when, you, when people ask you to give you give the overview of the quick gist of, of this book. What do you tell them? Well, not many people have asked me yet. Um, okay. Well. So you're on the, <laughs> the front end of some of these recordings. Um, I usually just say that the Bible is a permission slip for our questions. I think a lot of times in our Christian culture, we, we like to be answer people. We like to be, you know, we like to have our apologetics down pat, yeah. but I think some of the first things we see of God is him asking his people questions and i think we should pay attention to that yeah yeah you speak of cultivating curiosity as a spiritual habit mm. um what do you mean how is curiosity a spiritual habit what do you mean by that well i mean augustine would say it's a vice but um <laughs> yeah, right. he also yeah. didn't much like you know the plays yeah or, or the aeneid which that hurts my feelings um yeah i think that i think so often we kind of coast through life in a lot of ways until we suffer or um uh, we have a moment of pain or doubt and then we kind of can feel overwhelmed by the questions at that point in our life and because we haven't maybe practiced um, inquisitiveness about our hearts or about God, um, or allowed him to practice inquisitiveness about us. Mm -hmm. Um, we can let those questions kind of undo us. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, it's important to think about cultivating curiosity in my life as a spiritual habit, because I don't, I've been thrown by those questions before. I've, I've been in the middle of those moments of suffering and been really surprised by questions like, where are you, God? And do you exist? And are you good? Um, or questions from him, like, do you trust me or do you love me? And, and so I think cultivating it as a spiritual habit helps me to sort of exercise those muscles ahead of time not that it makes the answers or the lack of an answer any easier in the moment yeah. but at least i don't um maybe spin out or yeah. spiral out when those questions right. come because we eventually ask the questions 
right? Something happens that makes us ask the question. All of us ask the questions. Yeah. Yeah. We eventually yeah. get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you said something about God being inquisitive. How how is an how is an omniscient being inquisitive? So I I think that um, if you think of inquisitiveness as sort of sometimes we ask questions that we know the answers to, right? Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. we're trying to help people. We're trying to hold their hand and help them arrive to an answer. And I don't know that that's necessarily the most helpful thing in every conversation for us right. to ask yeah. questions knowing or wanting a specific answer but i think in all knowing god he can do that if he wants and i think he does i think you know when he says um what have you done where are you um who told you that those are those are questions that he's asking to adam and eve in genesis in order to get them to face what they've done and to name the enemy and to um Mm -hmm to talk about why they're hiding from him and those kinds of things. Yeah. I love that question that you talk about in the book. Who told you, who told Mm -hmm. you you were naked? And maybe we'll circle back around to that later. Um, I feel like we have to, you, it felt like you might've been talking bad about St. Augustine. So I feel like we need to. (laughs) No, 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 no. I I love St. Augustine. I love St. Augustine. I mean, he was talking when when he spoke of curiosity being a sin, I think he was talking about something different from what you're talking about. Right. yeah, he was. I mean, you'd think of, I mean, just to make it easy, you think of things like um, curiosity killed the cat. So mm-hmm. being curious about things that um, we don't need to be curious about, or um, I think there is a type of curiosity that can be a sin, um, yeah. want, demanding to know something that's not our, our business. Not our or, business. Yeah. 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 Um, do you have any insight on how you know the difference between what's our business and what's not? What's our business to be curious about and what's what is a what's not? any any insight on that? Um I I like to leave those questions to the Holy Spirit because I think the Holy Spirit is a better teacher of discernment than I probably am. <laughs> That's so, good. This is a skill you you said this is this is early in the process of recording these things. That's a skill you you uh, can keep polishing. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that deflection. Um, I'm not. So to be clear, I'm not trying to deflect necessarily. But what I am saying is that I think a question for me that might be um, too wondrous for me to ask um, might not be for someone else. Like mm-hmm. yeah. the Holy Spirit might be leading them to ask that question. So yeah. I think when I, I just would, I don't want to like throw lines down and tell people don't cross this right. line. Right. I want them to, to trust as, the spirit. As I was reading your book and thinking about that question of, of what is, you know, what is the line beyond which curiosity is, is looking into things that, that aren't ours to look into. I think, you know, one thing that, that occurred to me is it's probably that line is, or that, that boundary is a bigger boundary than we normally think. I, mean, I think that's the main principle there. Yeah. I mean, that's why I tell people the Bible is a permission slip for our questions, because I think when we look in scripture, we see all kinds of men and women lobbing all kinds of questions at God. And yeah. those same men and women show up in Hebrews 11 as people who are found full of faith and yeah. um, whose faith was credited to them as righteousness, despite their despite their questions. And yeah, so I think yeah. it's it's very permissive. I think if Psalm 16 says the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Mm-hmm. And I just think so often in our faith, we can 
because we're afraid or because we've been taught differently, we can just draw those boundary lines really close, really yeah. tight in. Um, and I just think God is a really, he's a very gracious and very generous God. Yeah. And he's not afraid of our questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of these thoughts that became this book started uh, strangely enough, with a greeting card that you received, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that had a quote from Rilke. Mm-hmm. Um, what's Rilke's first name or first two or three names? He has several names, doesn't Ray- he? Rainer Marie Wilke, for Maria Wilke, Rilke. Yeah. Tell me about that quotation, how that set you on this path. Yeah. You don't I mean, put the whole thing. That's a, it's a pretty long quotation. It's a pretty long quote. It's worth, it's worth looking up the whole thing though, because it is so, I think, powerful. Um, yeah. So I was, I was around 28, I think, or 29 when that, when I read that and I had been, um, my whole, I, I say Christian life, but my whole religious upbringing was, really just about the answers it was about knowing the answers to everything and it became kind of like math in my head like do this and god will do this but what i was seeing was just like brokenness and destruction in my life and around me and i had the evidence for the things that i had done but i wasn't seeing the evidence of what god had done (laughs) i just didn't have eyes to see it at that point and so um I think what I began to realize when I read that quote where he speaks about living the questions, what I began to realize is that my faith had been in institutions. They had been in individuals or it had been in individuals. It had even been in my own abilities and skills, my own power. And I realized that when I looked in scripture, faith, the, the people to whom with faith was credited as righteousness who were men and women who couldn't really see the outcome. They were just doing what they saw God telling them to do, or in some ways they weren't even, weren't even doing that. They weren't even being (laughs) obedient. Um, You know, they were doing some awful things, Um, but they had to live into those experiences. They couldn't circumvent Um, There was no combination lock that was going to unlock God's goodness for them or his faithfulness. And that's what the life of faith is. It's, it's walking. um, It's kind of sort of learning to walk in the dark in a lot of ways. Uh, You know, we hear people say, look, we know the end of the story and we do, but that doesn't mean we know all the chapters in between. Yeah. There's a whole lot of middle there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did pull up that that long quote from Rilke. Um, I, and I, I love it. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Mm. And that's and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but yeah. but it's it's so good. And then you know, live the questions. What what is that that phrase? Live the questions. It becomes a refrain in, in your book. Um, tell me about that. What 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 do you what would you say? Live the questions means. Yeah, I think I, one of the things that was, that I was seeing in my own life was this propensity to sort of like bounce right from a question to settling for an answer, Mm -hmm. even if the answer didn't actually settle me. Yeah. 
even if the answer didn't actually um, lead me to love God more or see God more. Mm -hmm. And so I started, I, I, I call this bouncing, like this bounce, it was like this, you know, Tigger, we're kind of happy. We're just going to move through, like yeah. move from one question to an answer. And, and I think what I began to learn was that I, when I chose to stick with a question without running right to an answer, um, I actually found God in that place. I found the real, the living God in that place instead of finding sort of a an idolized picture of God or um, like a a felt Jesus, like a you know Sunday <laughs> oh, school felt Jesus, board, yeah. yeah, felt board Jesus. Yeah. Um, but when I sat with those questions and just kind of sat in the the fullness of what those questions revealed about me, what they revealed about God and what they revealed about the world around me. My faith was really strengthened in a way that I don't know that it ever has been strengthened before. Mm -hmm. And, and it continue. I, I find myself in situations even now, you know, 12 or 13 years later where when I find myself wanting to move toward control, wanting to know the answer for something, and I just lose sight of God really yeah. quickly. And um, so that's what, I, to me, that's what living the questions means. Yeah. You know, sometimes I, I find myself by default thinking of questions and answers as being almost like, you know, dissonance and then resolution. I'm feeling some dissonance, ask a question, oh, there's some resolution. You know, I, that, I feel some disequilibrium, the answer to the question gives me some equilibrium. Yeah. Um, and like you said, sometimes we latch on to just out of the desire to have some equilibrium, we latch on to an answer a little yeah. too soon. Yeah. And, um, you know, in a, it's not unusual in a, in a symphony, for instance, for the dissonance to keep to unfold other dissonance mm. and keep going. Yeah. Eventually, there's resolution typically in, a, in these <laughs> in these pieces of, of music. Um, but. In a in a um, in a what do you call it? I guess in, in a symphony or in a or in a novel, um, if we get that resolution too soon, it's over. Yeah. And uh, I don't know why we don't learn from story, yeah, or from music that um, that we don't really want um, resolution as quickly as we as we think we do. Yeah. And yet, you know, I mean, when I think so often, and I think you you touch on this in your book. I'm reluctant to to ask a question. Sometimes I'm reluctant to answer to ask the question for fear that it's going to unfold more questions. You know, if, if I could be sure I was going to get a satisfactory answer and be good, yeah, then I would be glad to ask the question. Yeah, um, but if I'm afraid it might unfold some more questions, I'm I'm a little bashful about asking. I think that's what faith is. Like when we look at, I mean, look at Peter, for example, stepping out into the boat. I know it's like an old, you know, an age old, you know, metaphor for faith and all those things, but it's, About it's one and a half. Yeah. <laughs> um, everything that made sense to him in that moment as a, a man who was familiar with water and familiar <laughs> with boats and familiar with storms, like everything that made sense to him, he had to kind of suspend that unbelief and and trust that that god was gonna 
God was going to, Jesus was going to be there and, and he was going to carry him and hold him. And I think that's, that is true. That is what God does. That is who Jesus is. That is his character. Um, and I'm I sorry, what could you say it again? What's his character? To, to be there. Mm-hmm. to to hold us to carry us to yeah. to sustain us and i think what i want to say too is that doesn't always look the way we think it's going to look right i think that we sometimes are afraid to ask questions if we don't know the answer because we're afraid that the answer is not going to be what we want it to be yeah um and sometimes the answer isn't what we want it to be sometimes the person we want to be healed from cancer dies sometimes you know, the baby we want doesn't come sometimes, you know, these, all these different things that we ask God about, we don't see the answer. And, um, and ultimately, and this is what the book points at is that we have Jesus, we have his presence and he loves us. And that is an unchanging fact. And that's, I think that is the answer. That is how we have faith. Um, I think shortcuts to faith are, well, they're shortcuts. They're not real. <laughs> yeah. Except, yeah. Okay. The only place we speak bad about shortcuts is when we're speaking metaphorically. In real life. And that's true. Shortcuts are great. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Um, well, by the way, I, there's a formulation in your book that I, I just love it so much. And I might cross-stitch it on a pillow. I like it so much. And you say... To ask a question is to hope that what we currently know isn't the whole story. Um, that wasn't a question, I know, but maybe you have more to say about that. Um, yeah, I think it's an act of faith. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think asking a question is hope. It is an expression of hope. It's um, and the willingness to ask a question that co- like creates another question. Mm-hmm. And to ask that question is hope. And and I think sometimes people who ask questions or, or maybe are struggling in their faith, they're disparaged by people for not having enough faith or enough hope. And I think the opposite is true. I think people who are willing to ask questions and um, move into what they don't know is extremely optimistic. Um I don't think that think that's pessimistic at all. Uh, to me, that shows courage and resilience and ultimately hope. Yeah. Hope. Um, it's, it, it is a gesture toward, it seems to me, instead of saying, I've got my ideas about how the world is supposed to work and it better work this way or I'm going to be mad at somebody. <laughs> Or instead of saying, I want to know what reality is so that maybe I can align myself with reality instead of reality. Expecting yeah. reality to align to what's inside my my head. I, I, I wonder if most of us could articulate that, though. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, most of us can't articulate that when we're in the middle of a... Sure. Um, especially some more difficult questions like, you know, are you good? Or why was I born? Or do you love me? It's hard to articulate um, that. But I think um, hope is not, it's an emotion. 
It's mm-hmm. a feeling, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, and to we can feel things without being able to articulate exactly what they are. And so that's why it's helpful for me to think of asking a question as an act of hope. Yeah. Um, because it is, it's a felt emotion um, that this can't be all there is. Mm-hmm. There yeah. has to be something more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you point out that, when children are confused, they ask questions. They get curious. This is confusing to me. Therefore, can you tell me more about this? And for grown-ups, we shut down. We go into argument mode. Like when we're confused. We retreat to what we already know, um, which is is doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just what we do. Yeah. Um, could you say more about that? Maybe I had a maybe I had a question. No, oh. the question was let's talk about this. Okay, I think I mean envision two little children um, with um, two different parents, and one child says, "Daddy, why is the sky blue?" And um, the daddy says, uh, "Just because it is." And he says, "Why can't we go to um, the park?" because I said so, and I'm your father. <laughs> and these are things that, I mean, that's, that's a scenario that, you know, most of us have seen or if, if not experienced ourselves. And then imagine another child who says, why is the sky blue? I don't know. Why do you think the sky is blue? Um, well, maybe it's because blah, 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 blah. That's possible. Maybe we should go find a book and see if that, I mean, just the experience of those two children is so completely different, but I think most of us have had the first experience. Um, and we, we've been, many of us have had that experience in church as we've grown older. Um, why do we trust God? Because he's trustworthy. <laughs> That's not a very helpful answer in the midst of like, I'm struggling to trust God. Um, what would be better is to 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 know that God is a father who wants you to um well, he wants to sometimes ask you a question back. Um, why are you why do you find it difficult to trust me? what What is hurting mm. in you? Um, what do you want me to heal? Because mm. those are oftentimes the things that contribute to our lack of trust. and um, and so, I think that I want to be more like I want to be more like a child a child who can ask my father um, questions, knowing that sometimes he'll ask them back to me, and sometimes I might have to do some work. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I might have to wait, and some things might be a mystery, mm-hmm. and um, he might not have an answer for everything. But that's the kind of child I want to be yeah. with him. Yeah. Um, you say that Christianity isn't so much about knowing good answers as much as it's asking good questions, but sure, there's a place for answers, isn't there? Like, we, don't we ask in hopes of getting answers? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think to me, the answer is Jesus. Um, and I know that might seem simplistic, but um, but that is the we it is in him that we find 
the yes and amen. It is in him that we find the way, the truth, and the life. Um, it is through him that we find the Father. It is because of him that we have the Spirit. And um, and so, of course, so that's that's the answer. Jesus is the answer. And then there's a, tri- a trickle down from that. Um, so what does that mean for, um, you know, where should I go to college? Who should I marry? <laughs> I think if Jesus is our sort of guiding if he's the guiding presence, if the Holy Spirit is the guiding presence, those answers will feel more, um, hopefully, they'll feel more accessible to us. Um, I think so often, at least in my life, I, when I want an answer to something, I look around me, I look at the people mm-hmm. around me, I look at my community, I look at yeah. um, to pastors or elders, I look to um, wise writers from mm-hmm. from old, I, I look to podcasts or whatever like i i i look around me and i rarely look to jesus and just say what are you asking of me um to do here and and how can i find goodness you know the good life in you in this world um and i think jesus is faithful to answer that question um god's word says that uh wisdom is given to us generously when we ask and i know that might be that might sound like a cop-out answer but i do think that jesus is the most important one to orient our whole lives around Mm -hmm. um not a specific doctrine or a specific um issue political issue or city those kinds of things yeah 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 um, okay, this is a podcast about writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm inter- interested to hear from you some things you've learned about the creative process mm-hmm. by doing this much thinking about curiosity as a spiritual discipline, right? Curiosity is, curiosity is a spiritual discipline. It's also a creative discipline. Mm-hmm. And and those aren't necessarily two entirely different things, right? For the same reason that's a creative, uh, spiritual discipline is some of the same reasons that's a spiritual. Did I say the same thing twice? Anyway, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. I think curiosity at its core is the the work of paying attention, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's paying attention to the macro and the micro. It's paying attention to the human in front of you. Mm-hmm. It's paying attention to the story that you're living. Yeah. And when you, I think there's a type of curiosity that is just about gathering facts and figures and intelligence and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um. And I don't want to say that's all bad, but um, I think there's a like an open-handedness of practicing curiosity as a spiritual discipline. Um, it's a formative experience, and it it has to be open-handed. Um, I mean, in order, what does open-handed mean? Yeah, it means sometimes we don't know where we're going. Yeah. Um, almost every single thing I've ever written, I don't know where I'm going 
when I started, you know, Flannery said, I don't know what I think until I've written it. And, um, and I think many writers would probably say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a different kind of writing than academic or technical writing where you're, you know, following an outline and those kinds of things, mm-hmm. trying to prove a point, but to write as a creative exercise, oftentimes we just don't know where we're going. Yeah. And we're just going to, by the way, I think intellectually honest academic writing also doesn't mean you know where you're going to start with. I love that idea. That's a really. I mean, I think any kind of intellectual honesty requires that we don't start with the answer Mm -hmm. that we're going to, that we're, you know, that we're working toward. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't, you know, I think it's a lot, in some ways it's easier to write that way. And in mm-hmm. some ways, that's what readers expect is you got an answer and now you're going to walk me yeah. through the answer. Um, and I think it's helpful to have some sort of conclusion. I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to moving toward an answer. I yeah. think it's a, just a bad idea to start with the answer yeah. every time and then figure out how am I going to get to this answer, this, this preconceived notion that's going to be my answer. I wonder if... Um... The way publishing is these days, it really, it kind of does require that you have an answer. Um, The ways that proposals Mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, this is a writing podcast, so hopefully your listeners are familiar with that process in some respect. Yeah. So just being able to, you know, sit down and churn out a, you know, the first three chapters of your book and an annotated uh, chapter table of contents and comparable titles and all those kinds of things. There is, it does take the curiosity out of it. Mm-hmm. And for me, honestly, Jonathan, I found that to be one of the most difficult parts of writing books mm-hmm. um, because I tend to be a very, um, well, I'm, I tend to be a curious writer. I tend mm-hmm. to be someone who kind of writes myself into my best ideas and mm-hmm. That has been a real challenge for me mm-hmm. in writing. Now, didn't you finish this book before you got a contract for it? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the we, the contract was in the works for about two months before uh-huh. we finally got a signed contract. But, but it wasn't yeah. one of those things where I've got a proposal and here's here's what this book is going to do. And then you write to that. Um, I No, I wrote the proposal, I think. Oh gosh, it was, it all happened in like a six month period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I started the book, wrote the first like 10 chapters and then I wrote the proposal and then it got shopped and then mm-hmm. I continued okay. the book. And, continued, yeah, yeah. 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 But at least you weren't con- committed contractually. I wasn't. No. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I wasn't. Yeah. But I think I still, just to be honest, I think I still, um, my mind is still in that space where, well, the publisher wants, you know, an acquisition editor, they're going to want to see a proposal. They're going to want to see a great idea that's marketable and Mm -hmm. your ability to market it. And I wonder if it's taken some of the creativity out of the, the craft. Well, don't let it take the creativity out, Lauren. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, all right. I've got so so your structure here is you round it up 
30, 35 questions. Were they all from scripture? Mm-hmm. Were all, yeah, I was thinking they were. Um, and there's a little essay on each of those. And, and one that, that, I, that to me felt really relevant to the writer. It's one of, one of the first two or three essays of, of the piece um, is that question of when God asks Adam and Eve, who told you? Like they said, mm-hmm. we hid because we were naked. And he says, who told you you were naked? Mm-hmm. Naked. And um, and I love the way you talk about that, right? That that the the need for us to 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 understand the, where are the ideas that we have in our you know th- those those ideas those false ideas in our head mm-hmm. that we often think came from inside us mm-hmm. came from somewhere else a lot of the time. Yeah, and that that seems super relevant to writers, mm-hmm. and you know. I, I'm always hesitant when people are talking about actual spiritual principles to say, oh, yeah, that reminds me of something about writing. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, what you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about the inner critic and the difference between, you know, my actual inner critic, my own judgment, which yeah. the writer has to have. And then all those other voices that I've just externalized from elsewhere. Mm. And I love that question of who told you that you weren't supposed to have a split infinitive? Who told you that your <laughs> ideas yeah. probably aren't going to be good enough or interesting enough, or who told you the things you're curious about are not what Ian Bells is going to be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're a writer. You you know about the inner critic and you know about other voices yeah. that, that get in there too. Yeah. Um, so the floor is open for discussion on that topic. Yeah. I think so many things in our lives are sort of implicit uh thoughts more than they are explicit um Mm -hmm. so you know the old imposter syndrome syndrome you're not enough or you're Uh, you're faking uh you're going to be found out um has someone actually told us those things (laughs) i don't know um but when we you know when we measure ourselves up to someone else Mm -hmm. or when we um we see people hanging out without us, you know, we can tend to think, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, an imposter, I'm this, mm-hmm. I'm that. And so, um, and I really think that is implicit. It's not explicit. No one's saying that to me, mm-hmm. no one's saying that to yeah. you. Sometimes that happens. I mean, sometimes there are people who are <laughs> hanging out without us and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes other people are better at their craft than we are. Um, yeah. like, for sure that's a truth um but i think most of the time it's you know it's sneakier than that mm-hmm. and i think it's really important for us in those moments to get inquisitive about those accusations and to yeah. not just um sort of sit in the mud with them mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and let them sort of cover us over but to really you know look them square in the eyes <laughs> say you know give it a name one of the things Mm -hmm. i think i say it in that chapter is that naming is is power in some ways um but it also it compartmentalizes things it it makes them smaller it makes them what they actually are instead of making them this this big um making them bigger than they are yeah no yeah you in what you talk about in that chapter is naming anxiety yeah which, when you're experiencing experiencing anxiety, it feels like the world is a is an, a place where anxiety is the appropriate response <laughs> yes. to the world. Yeah, and uh, 
And it's really helpful to say anxiety is this, this thing. It's not the only way to see the world. And, and yeah. um, that's such a great example of where naming a thing really is a matter of master, not mastering, but beginning to master a thing. And I think I've mentioned this in my probably more than once on this podcast through the years, but somebody somewhere made a website where they could say you would, you would ask you, what are your biggest fears? Mm. And you'd, then you'd say, and then a couple of times a day, you get an email from your greatest fear. <laughs> That's say, so brilliant. That's so brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I love that so and, much. And, and you realize this is coming from out, you know, that fear yeah. is coming from outside me. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the whole thing is so ridiculous when you get an email from, Hey, this is, this is your fear of, of, um, you know, that you're going to die friendless, just reminding you that you're going to die friendless, you know, <laughs> it's so great and it's there's something about you know seeing that as something that's external to you that's not your whole self yeah um that's really powerful yeah um, that's what i think god wanted them to name the enemy um god was showing them how they were going to be able to survive in the world you know if we didn't know that there was a source other than us. We, we, those things would eat us alive. They yeah. totally eat us alive. And um, and I think God was saying, you're going to need this tool. You're going to yeah. need this tool in your tool belt. Yeah, man. I, I just, I love that question. Who told you? Who told you that you're not good enough? Who told you mm-hmm. that you're, yeah. that you had a whole list? Who told you that you're ugly? Who told you you're too much? Who told you, you, don't, yeah. you know, you're not enough? Um, that's a great tool. And then sometimes the answer is, oh, actually, I, you know, this speech that I'm working on, I know who told me it's going to be a disaster. It's me not preparing well enough and I better get on it. You know, I mean, sometimes the answer is that's a very reasonable fear. <laughs> and that's it, and some and sometimes the answer is that a real person said those things to you. Mm-hmm. And I think what's scary about answering that question, I mean, is that we might have to do some work. We might need to get some therapy. We might need to get some good counseling to work through. Oh, my dad told me this and, um, and I've lived with that ever, ever Mm -hmm. since. And, um, I think it's really important for us to face those things. They're really hard to face sometimes, but it is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So many critical voices in our lives are, these are people who don't have any, who don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) People have big brothers. Yeah. Things are big brothers put in their heads that big brother doesn't had no idea what he was talking about or maybe someone did the same thing to him and he, sure. the only thing he knows how to do is do the same thing to others and so we get to be the people who will say i'm not going to perpetuate that in my life i'm not yeah. going to be the person who tells other people mm-hmm. that they yeah. can't do it or yeah um okay uh I recently read, I think, actually, I say recently, a couple of hours ago, I think you just posted it, a, a little essay you wrote about the inner ring, C.S. Lewis' mm. idea of the inner ring. And since you just mentioned people hanging out without you, <laughs> um, that seems to be something that's on your mind because that's something you mentioned in the in that, yeah. that essay. Um, I just, I mean, we're, we're running short on time, but I still, yeah. but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. You say in that essay, you, you draw a distinction, which we should all be, I think we're all aware of, but it still gets mixed up in our minds, the difference between love and approval mm. and our seeking for approval mm. as a substitute maybe for seeking love. Mm. 
And you said something that sounded awesome, but I, I've just got to ask you what you even meant by it. <laughs> what you said was, uh, I'm going to have to, I guess I'm going to have to paraphrase. In essence, oh, no, here it is. The more I've learned what love is, the less I care about approval because I've learned I don't need it. You should, learned you don't need I, approval? I'm learning I don't need it. I should have said. Okay, you're learning. I'm learning I don't need it. But I would I would say in comparison to me 5, 10, mm-hmm. 15 years ago. Because um, I can tell I was, you I'm a long way from knowing I don't need approval. Crippled by it, though. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely crippled by it. Um, and now I do feel, um, it, I think it, a friend always talks about um, a, a difficult thing in her life. She says it hits her, but it doesn't haunt her. Mm. I always loved that. Um, I always loved that phrase because I think there's so many things in our lives that haunt us for a really long time. Yeah. And um, and this goes back to what we were just talking about, just sort of the accusations, the implicit accusations. But when we finally are able to name it, we realize it's still going to hit us at times, but mm-hmm. it's not going to haunt us because I can give it a name. And so I think when I think about approval, that's that's what I think about is, you know, it hits me at times right now so yeah, I'm, what, I'm what's it approve the need for approval the, for the approval. desire for approval mm-hmm. um or yeah the yeah the the desire to be an element of approval whether that's mm-hmm. liked or invited or wanted or those kinds of things um there are gonna be times where it's 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 hitting me more and so for instance i'm in the middle of launching a book this book out into the world (laughs) and it's a time every author if they're being honest will tell you this is a time where all of your insecurities are absolutely you know they're they're blinking red lights and you um you just want people to buy your book and you want people to you know acknowledge the fact that you've been working on this for two years and Um, but I think the thing I just keep coming back to is I am God's beloved. He loves me. I am loved by God. And um, if only one person reads this book and their life is changed, like my life was changed by reading Rilke's quote 13 yeah. years ago, um, that is sufficient. That is sufficient. Yeah. And, yeah. and I can go to bed confident and um, with joy. So I, I should have said I'm learning to be um, okay without approval, yeah. but I think, you know, I, I would say it was probably 80% of my life, maybe, maybe 90% of my life, you know, 10 years ago was wanting approval. Yeah. And I would say it's a much, much smaller yeah. slice. And I think part of that is just getting older probably. Sure. Too. Yeah. Just, yeah. And it's, I think it's so important that you ask yourself, why is it so important to me that people I don't know yeah. approve of me yeah. and love me? But I, people I can't love back, why do, do I, why do I need for them to love me so bad? Yeah, it's a great question. When I do know, I can I can list some people who actually love me yeah, and who like the books that I've written and the fact that most people don't know about any books I've written. You know, what's really interesting is that I know we got to run, but what's really interesting is I I have always... I've been someone who withheld my real love from people hmm. um, for, for various reasons through my life. I've been someone who's held back, who's withdrawn and, and reserved my love and my trust. Hmm. And in the past seven or eight years, partially because of some of the things I share in the beginning of the book, I've realized, wow, this is really doing damage in my life and in the lives of the people around me. And so I've begun to be 
braver with that love and yeah. to give that love and to really like plant my flags in, in like a, a couple of relationships that are profound and rich and um, immeasurably good in my life. And the more that I find my love in them and feel loved by them, the less I care about the approval of the masses. So I think, I do think that love is to be loved and to love is the way to, to not be haunted by the, mm. the need and desire for approval. Yeah. Right. Okay. Can you give me, we're, we're running short on time, but can you give me one or two writers who make you want to write? Oh, as we're wrapping things up here. One or two. Uh, Wendell Berry, always Wendell Berry. That's the spirit. In every form and format. Um, always Madeline Lango. Mm. I always walk away from her. I think a writer, um, um, and he's my literary agent, so I'm giving him a little plug here, but John Blaze uh -huh. is, is just... He makes me want to be a better writer. Yeah. And um, yeah. Well, great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lori, for being here. And I hope we can, I hope a lot of people read and benefit from this book. And I hope thank we can you. talk again soon. Thank you. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.